Welcome back to the Altco's Mainstream Podcast. On today's episode, we have an expert allocator in the alt space. Phil Huber, CIO, Savant Wealth, comes onto the podcast to discuss how he approaches allocating to alts on behalf of their wealth clients. Phil has spent much of the past 15 years thinking deeply about alts. This has culminated in him authoring a book, The Allocator's Edge, a modern guide to alternative investments and the future of diversification. Phil and I had a fascinating discussion where he shares his views on how he's approached investing in alts and actionable insights for how LPs can go about building an alt strategy and how GPs and issuers can work with the private wealth space. Thanks, Phil, for coming on the Altgo's Mainstream Podcast to share your wisdom as an allocator to alts. And if you like this podcast, you can listen or read more about alts by subscribing at altgoesmainstream.substack.com. Phil, welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I'm a regular listener, so to be a guest on the show is an honor. I would say the only downside when I listen is that I know I'm going to have your theme song stuck in my head for the rest of the day. But other than that, really excited to be here. Thank you to Young Spielberg for that. And uh, there is a lot to talk about beyond the theme song. You're a wealth manager, CIO at a very large and sophisticated independent RIA. You've written a book on alts, so you're going to be the one teaching me lessons here. And there's a lot to discuss when it comes to current environment. So let's get right to it. What I want to start with is, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? My favorite question. I get asked this a lot, and I think usually people expect me to answer yes. I think it's a pretty nuanced question. Obviously, we're using 60-40 as shorthand for this sort of traditional balanced asset allocation between public stocks and bonds. Why is the 60-40 so popular and well-adapted amongst particularly financial advisors and their clients? There's a handful of reasons. Number one, it's done historically well over a multi-decade period. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the 30 to 40-year bond bull market. Um, it's pretty intuitive. I think even your most novice and end investor understands, okay, stocks for growth and appreciation, bonds for income and defense, balance them together. It just makes sense to people that don't have a lot of investing acumen. And it's gotten increasingly easier to implement over time. You can pretty much own global stock and bond markets broadly through one or two ticker symbols and call it a day. I think the intent behind 6040 makes a lot of sense. People want balance. People recognize that we live in an uncertain world and we want to hedge our bets a little bit and be diversified. I think the implementation of 6040 is what will change over time. There's going to be pretty substantial adoption and growth of alternatives. And the idea of 6040, if we take away the descriptors of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and think of it more 60% growth, 40% diversifiers, I think that becomes a new framework. And that opens up the door to going beyond public and into private markets, introducing other forms of diversification beyond fixed income. I think that helps us better understand, okay, we still like the ideas of being broadly diversified, but maybe we've got better tools in our toolkit to do so. And also coming off a year like last year, recognizing that the 60-40 stock bond portfolio is not impervious to big declines and that inflation can be that one 
you know, variable that disrupts that expected relationship between the two asset classes. I think it was a helpful reminder that what's worked in the past isn't always going to work in the future. And we have the benefit today of having a lot more options to build portfolios with. Do you think that a new framework will be developed? You obviously see firms like KKR come up with the 40-30-30, 40% stocks, 30% bonds, 30% alts. There's the 10-10 framework in your book that you referenced from the CEO of Stone Ridge. Is there going to be mm. a new framework that people start to adopt just like much of the wealth community adopted the 60-40 portfolio? I think there will be a lot of different frameworks that sort of challenge the quote-unquote 60-40. I don't necessarily know what we'll all agree upon one. For your listeners, the 10-10 construct that I reference in the book that comes from Ross Stevens, the CEO of Stone Ridge Asset Management. The idea there is that that's really specific to the alternatives part of a portfolio with this notion that we don't need to overthink it necessarily. If you can find 10 unique risk premiums that are uncorrelated to traditional markets and uncorrelated to each other, you could do a lot worse than just dividing your assets equally among them and then making a determination on how you want to size that allocation within your overall portfolio and where you want to carve it out from. I think there's a simplicity and sort of an elegance to that without trying to over-engineer and over-optimize. At the end of the day, it's can you stomach a substantial allocation to non-traditional assets in the attempt to improve the overall diversification of your assets. How much do you think diversification should really feature when thinking about alts? Because there's also a school of thought that concentration is what leads to outsized returns. Obviously, context is so important in what we're talking about here, and I want to make that clear. But if you think about certain aspects of alts, when people are highly concentrated, when they make the right decisions, that's when they're driving significant returns. There's the old getting rich versus staying rich. When we work with clients, they've in many cases done a great job in their careers and their businesses of building wealth through concentration. And our job is really to help them and protect that wealth over time. We view it more from a, how do we diversify your assets more? And so we have more of a core alternatives mix that we utilize across liquid and semi-liquid asset classes for most of our clients, where the idea there is to probably have a little bit of an in-between risk profile between stocks and bonds, but across those suite of asset classes and strategies have pretty to very low correlation over time. The idea there is to maybe fill in some of the gaps where bonds might fall short diversification-wise and just create an overall smoother ride for our clients. With portfolios and obviously tailoring it to specific clients based on their needs, there's so many different levers you can pull across the different aspects of desire for preservation versus growth, illiquidity versus liquidity, where they are in their life, et cetera. It's a great segue into the periodic table that you put together in your book, which <laughs> has obviously key defining features of various investment strategies or asset types. But then there's also secondary considerations as well that you think about with regards to each, whether it's private credit or private equity Walk us through how you've thought about that and your approach there, and maybe can that serve as a framework for people as they think through, here's the different things I can toggle with and decide how to get to an overall portfolio, looking at a bunch of different strategies, thinking about what their primary and secondary features are. Yeah, I would say that's probably been the most consistent feedback on the book is people love the periodic table. I think it's a really useful, helpful analogy for financial markets and portfolio construction. If you think about the chemical periodic table of elements that we all learned in high school, a couple of things stick out. Is one is you, if you combine different elements together in different proportions, you're going to get different outcomes and different compounds. 
The same goes for portfolios and, and underlying asset classes. And also just this idea that well over 100 chemical elements in that table, not all of those were discovered at the same time. Those actually were all discovered over a multi-century period. Similarly, as our understanding of financial markets evolves and there's more innovation around investment management and different risk premiums that we can access, our understanding of how to build a portfolio changes over time. There's more investment elements that we've uncovered and made investable. I think that's another way to frame it as well. Every asset class has at least one, I would say, primary objective, and if not, maybe a secondary or tertiary objective. But those can be anything from inflation protection to growth to income, capital preservation, general diversification and low correlation, um, tax efficiency, et cetera. The idea is use those core objectives, align those with the investors and goals and objectives, and try to build the best mix with everything that you have at your disposal to, to build the right portfolio for them. Let's talk about something else that's been added to the mix, which is the current environment that we live in. We've obviously gone through a period of low rates. Now we have rising rates, higher inflation, different world order. The geopolitics is influencing what's happening in markets as well. Have we entered a new macroeconomic regime for investing? And if so, how does it impact how you think about certain things on the periodic table? In many ways, it certainly seems like we have. I think instinctively, we're drawn to extrapolate the recent past. And so our minds always go to what is the historical analogy? Is this a repeat of the 70s in the instance of inflation? I think we always want to be humble around our macroeconomic forecasts. And while many things point to the next 10 years looking perhaps quite different than the past 10, that's pretty commonplace in general. You tend to see a lot of leadership changes across asset classes, across geographies, across sectors over time. No one investment is a winner forever. And so I think that, again, speaks to being humble and having a broad-based approach to how you diversify. And the beauty of having a really diversified portfolio across traditional alternatives, you don't have to make a big macro bet. I think if your entire portfolio is contingent upon the outcome of a particular macro bet, then more often than not, you're likely to be disappointed and have unsuccessful outcomes. And so Yes, there are a lot of signs pointing, whether it be inflation or valuations or geopolitical risk, that, hey, maybe there's a new regime in place. Yes, but at the same time, if you and I are sitting down here two years from now, it also probably wouldn't surprise me if we're asking ourselves again, well, why can't the Fed get inflation above 2%? So you have a lot of these conflicting forces. And I think, again, you want to hedge your bets and spread them out and not be too convicted and think more probabilistically rather than have a dead set view on a particular regime. On that point, how should we think about correlation, though? Because sometimes there's hidden correlations that we may not realize. One example would be equities. Private equity, although different from public equities, is still equities. And if you think about recent times, obviously, you could argue that private markets are, in theory, less volatile than public markets because they're not mark-to-market on a daily basis. But valuations have changed pretty rapidly in private markets as well. So there may be more hidden correlation, even crypto to some extent. I know historically, something like Bitcoin had had very low correlation relative to equity markets. But as you get more retail investors, there's anecdotally seem to be more correlation between public equities, crypto, so how should we think about these things and dynamics when it comes to diversification correlation in a portfolio? I would say first, sticking maybe more with the liquid type investments, that correlations are not static. They can and do change over time. We saw that last year with bonds. I think there, there was a natural assumption that bonds are going to 
the, the ballast to your portfolio in periods of equity market stress. And that's true a lot of the times. It's not true when yields are at historic low levels and we get major upside surprises in inflation that are stickier than we thought they were going to be. And so we saw that as sort of the kryptonite for the stock bond relationship. And actually, if you extend the history books as far back as we have data, the more normal relationship for stocks and bonds is actually that they are slightly positively correlated. It's really more the kind of post-70s regime of the beginning of the bond bull market that that relationship was more modestly negative and that you had that greater dependency to count on bonds to do well when stocks were doing poorly. Um, but things like Bitcoin, things like commodities, as they become increasingly financialized over time, you see once negative or just relatively low correlations spike up a little bit. And those can go back down as well. That's always something to bear in mind is having a good understanding of what are the risk factors that drive returns for different asset classes and having a sense of maybe what kind of macro environment they may or may not continue to behave that way. In terms of those public and private, yes, statistically, private equity venture are less volatile than public equities because they mark less frequently. Are they less risky though? That's a different question. So kind of kind of stripping apart volatility and risk, I would argue that private equity and venture are just as, if not more, risky than public equities and also a much wider dispersion of outcomes depending on manager selection and things of that nature. I think it's important to not take the lack of marks, whether that be in private equity or private credit, as a sign that this is a low-risk investment and at the same time not to conflate volatility with risk. How do you go about approaching what someone's portfolio in the alt space should look like? For a individual investor or maybe financial advisors that are in the process of exploring alternatives, I would say really recognize who is your core audience? What types of clients do you serve? What do your portfolios look like today? I think a lot of that will help inform where you should probably spend your time in alternatives. If your clients and your firm are accustomed to investing only in ETFs and you have zero exposure to anything non-traditional, it doesn't make a lot of sense to go from zero to 60 and start introducing 10 to 15 year lockup venture funds to them. Maybe it makes sense to dip your toe in the water a little bit and start with some liquid alternative asset classes that can be more diversifying, maybe things like managed futures or catastrophe bonds or things of that nature. And then maybe from there, you step a little bit out on the illiquidity curve and you introduce structures like interval funds that have a lot of the features that are common to mutual funds, but have limited selling liquidity. So that opens up a little bit to other asset classes that you can't necessarily package inside of a daily liquid wrapper. I think it's more maybe don't go zero to 60 and, and be more thoughtful about, hey, maybe there's a, somewhere you want to get longer term, but to get there in phases around building out your alternatives menu. On that point, one thing that's always been on my mind when it's come to product construction in the alt space, and this is more related to private equity or venture where people are creating now somewhat liquid wrappers or interval funds or things that make it easier from an admin perspective. So having public market investments sitting in a vehicle that also has private market investments. So investors only have to make one capital call rather than multiple capital calls over a period of time. But I understand why people are doing this, but should they be? And the reason why I say that is because you can get liquidity in other parts of your asset allocation. You can invest in public markets in various ways. Why create a liquid product for an investment that, in theory, may be better off being illiquid? It's a great question. I think there's definitely a place for these various types of what I would call semi-liquid structures and wrappers, and that's inclusive of interval funds, tender offer funds, 
private REITs, private BDCs. There's a whole kind of hodgepodge of things that kind of fit in the middle of your drawdown, long-term private vehicles and your daily liquid mutual funds and ETFs. I think it's recognizing that there's a lot of different types of investors out there, some non-accredited, some that are accredited, but not qualified purchasers and others that are qualified purchasers. So you've got these different requirement levels that may limit access to different fund types. I think you're making certain asset classes available to folks that maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to invest in them had there not been the kind of innovation around some of these other structures. I think certainly, though, you want to be mindful that there are trade-offs involved. At the end of the day, you need structures like these to incorporate illiquid investments because regulation-wise and just common sense-wise, it doesn't make sense to stuff illiquid investments in a mutual fund that can be bought and sold daily. When you have that, that liquidity mismatch, that's going to lead to bad outcomes. And then those types of vehicles are capped in the amount of illiquid securities they can own. The trade-offs are that, okay, if you're going to be in a registered vehicle that has periodic liquidity with illiquid investments, it's very likely that the manager is going to have to hold some portion in cash or short-term or public securities to meet regular periodic redemptions. And it also comes with knowing going in that even though there are these periodic windows of liquidity offered, that it's not guaranteed. In other words, while they may be required in some instances to repurchase a certain amount of outstanding shares in a given quarter, if redemption requests exceed minimum requirement, your redemption may be prorated and it might take you a lot longer to get your money fully out than you, you might have anticipated. I think the elephant in the room last year was BREIT from Blackstone, their private REIT. And not to say that most investors didn't understand that potential outcome, but I think it's something you need to be very thoughtful about as an advisor if you're putting people into semi-liquid structures that retain a lot of the same features as mutual funds, whether it be ticker symbols or 1099 for tax reporting. Many times they can kind of look and feel like a regular mutual fund. So if you're not really guiding them on the nuance there and making sure you're setting expectations properly, you want to really limit the potential for a negative surprise or a negative outcome there because that can be really damaging. So I think there's a role for them, but you also got to go in knowing that there's trade-offs involved. In the case of private equity, you're probably limiting your upside a bit to maybe a single manager type of fund, but you're also being able to diversify more broadly and have, again, some of the more convenience-related features that people tend to like around 1099 versus K1 tax reporting and monthly subscriptions and media capital deployment, all those sorts of things that I think people appreciate. I think it fills a gap and I think those areas are going to grow, but they're not for everybody either. The B-Read example brings up a really important point for both GPs and LPs which is that historically GPs have dealt with a certain type of LP, the institution. They had to build both the investment pre-investment process, the subscription process, the post-investment reporting, and how redemptions are handled, things of that nature, depending on the type of product for an institutional customer. That changes when you have an individual or retail customer. Walk us through what this new world of alts mainstreaming in terms of more individual and retail investors getting access to these platforms or products, what has to change in order for this to truly work in a way that works for the investor side? I think in many ways, if you think about the past 10 years, REAs have kind of solved the menu problem, whether they're sourcing opportunities on their own or partnering with a group like iCapital or Case or a handful of the other alternatives platforms out there from a kind of sourcing and diligence standpoint. I think that part is largely solvable and kind of solved. I think where firms that are accustomed to ticker-based investments and model portfolio delivery systems, it's really the implementation and operational aspects that RA firms are 
trying to solve for now because it, you gain an appreciation as you're going through subdocs and learning about capital calls and trying to plan for that. It's a much different ball game than going on to Schwab or Fidelity and punching in a ticker symbol or uploading a basket of trades or you're trading and rebalancing software. And I think for any RA, you need to understand your own resources and, and what you have internally. It might vary for small firms relative to larger firms that might have more built out investment research and trading and operations departments, whereas maybe a small RA doesn't have some of those resources. So they might want to contemplate what sourcing of some of that to different groups that can provide those services. I think that's the big piece. I think advisors have spent a lot of time understanding the why of alternatives and the what in terms of what they can invest in. I think it's really more the how from a structure standpoint, what are the different fund options out there and vehicle types? How do I build the operational processes to make this as seamless as possible? I think the biggest and most important part of implementation is client communication. How do I create a great client experience for clients that are unfamiliar with these asset classes or these vehicles? How do I help translate them? How do I help simplify these inherently more complex instruments so that you have a great client experience as well. So I want to talk about that in the context of your journey, maybe as an example for others. How did you go about that process of the what, the why, and the how? Walk us through that. I think maybe the aha kind of light bulb moment for me, I actually remember it very vividly. It was the early 2010s. I was a few years into my career at the, my prior RA before we joined Savant. And we were just beginning to dabble in liquid alternatives. I was very curious about the space and spending a lot of time learning and researching. Uh, I'll give credit to AQR here. I think they have done as good a job as anybody of helping advisors understand really more of the kind of the hedge fund strategy world and liquid alternatives and kind of democratizing that world a bit. That's why Cliff Asness wrote the forward to my book. He's always been the investing hero of mine. I was actually on a trip. They were hosting what they call AQR University, and they were hosting it on Stanford University's campus. And so I was on a flight from Chicago to San Francisco for that conference, and I brought some reading material with me, which was what I now call my investing Bible, which was a, a book called Expected Returns, written by Antti Ilmanen, who interestingly wasn't at AQR at the time. He is there now. And reading that book is really what opened my eyes to this notion of, of factor diversification and other types of asset classes beyond what I was already familiar with. And it was just really this comprehensive look at portfolio construction and asset class behavior and different economic regimes. It's just this massive book and really dense, but also really game-changing for me in terms of how I thought about portfolio construction. That was really, I think, the major start of my journey and what really piqued my curiosity and set me on this path towards wanting to really understand everything I could around alternatives. And, and that's been kind of a rabbit hole that I continue to go down today. It was a big part of what eventually inspired me to write the book. And so I always think back to that moment and reading that book on that plane. You were early relative to many others in the advisor space getting into alts. How did you navigate finding the right ways to allocate to alts early days as maybe there weren't as many platforms, like you mentioned, the iCapitals, the cases allocate to the world that exists today? Yeah, we were very much stock and bond model portfolios, mutual funds and ETFs. So it started with liquid alternatives because that was most appropriate for our client base at the time and what we were most comfortable and familiar with from a structure standpoint. And so from there, it's just been this slow, methodical evolution of making sure that we don't just want to dive in head first to something that could pose a business risk or something that we're not quite comfortable. We want to measure not just two times, we want to measure 10 times and cut once. I think it really behooved us to 
not just dive in, but really spend the time learning about things. And then eventually as we gain more and more comfort, okay, then you start to introduce semi-liquid structures. And now at Savant, we're slowly introducing private vehicles for clients. It's been a fun journey and an evolution, but again, I think making sure that not just understanding the investment case and rationale, but the implementation side of it too, and making sure we've got our ducks in a row there. How do you go about educating clients about alts, why they should have them in their portfolio? A number of ways. Obviously, there's the book that we've shared with a lot of clients and prospective clients. We've written a white paper as a firm on alternatives that we've made available on our website and that we share with clients. For any of the categories that we use in our core portfolios, we've got one-pagers and slide decks that advisors can use. Me and my team have tried to really build a library of content that our advisors can use. There's a lot of one-to-many communication that we do as a firm in terms of webinars and blog posts that our whole client base can see. But at the end of the day, most communication takes place one-to-one, and that's our group of advisors that are managing day-to-day client relationships. I think a lot of it is focusing our educational efforts around servicing them and making sure that they feel equipped and confident to be conversant in these areas. Some of that's just coaching them. It's getting in front of them as a group. And especially when we have something new with the, that we're introducing to the portfolios, it's hearing from me and my team, hearing from the manager themselves. We, we work with iCapital and they've got a partnership with the Kaya Association. There's an educational curriculum called Alts Edge that is embedded into our, our iCapital portal. That's been great too, to help familiarize and also get some CE credits along the way, but really get familiar with these kind of private market areas. We want to make sure that the people that are in the field meeting with clients every day have the right framework and understanding around how to talk about these investments with their clients. On that point, there's a lot of data that shows that younger investors have a different view on portfolio construction. Obviously, they may have more risk tolerance given their age, and tend to be very interested in investing in alts. Do you approach younger clients differently? And in terms of how you talk to them about alts, educate them about alts, the data shows that they want alts in their portfolio. Do you find them more knowledgeable about alts because of the data that I just mentioned? You know, it's funny, going back to just the word alternatives, I always think of it as, okay, well, alternative to what and alternative to whom? And it's such a broad spectrum of, asset types. And people tend to think of it as alts are like this monolithic thing, but it's really in the eye of the beholder in many ways. When I think of younger investors, many of them, just because of what they grew up around, might view things like Bitcoin and other forms of crypto, not even looking at them as alternative, just looking at them as, hey, this is what I invest in in my Robinhood account next to my stocks. And so I think it's understanding that different generations have different views and different familiarity levels with different types of alternatives. I think it's understanding the audience and understanding that definition can change over time, certainly. Obviously, I think the younger clients that we work with tend to be more digitally native, maybe have more things in their portfolio that might even sit outside of what we directly manage. It might be different types of platforms or apps that are out there that kind of open up different alternative asset classes. I think in many ways we approach them similarly, but yeah, I think there are certainly generational differences that we want to be mindful of when we're talking with clients. Where do you think advisors need most education when it comes to alts. You mentioned some of the investors, maybe crypto is something that they understand more as a younger investor. What about advisors? Are there certain types of alts where, from talking to many other advisors, you feel like this is an area where they could use or want education? I think it's everywhere. I think they need less selling, so to speak, on the why I think it's more of a, how do I translate this? They might really like something like managed futures and say, okay, I get it. I get what the data says. I get why this could be 
a powerful diversifier. There's a lot going on under the hood of this fund. How do I explain this to my end client in one or two sentences in a way that they can actually understand? That's what I think we spent a fair amount of time is how to you know continue to find ways to simplify some of these things and maybe draw comparisons to things that they already own and try to make the unfamiliar more familiar. That's a big piece. And I think what I spoke to earlier, I think the education is really going to be the next handful of years. I think growing adoption of semi-liquid, but that comes in many shapes and sizes and forms. Really, there's nuance there. I think it's important that people understand how those vehicles differ from standard liquid structures and making sure that they understand the pros and cons of each and the operational kind of nuances as well. That kind of moving from why to what to how is how I think about it. What do you think advisors do right? And what do you think advisors do wrong when it comes to investing in alts? I think a really good advisor is going to have their fiduciary hat on at all times and always think of things as what is best for the client. I think what they actually do right is they approach the space with skepticism. And I think that's a good thing. There was a lot of liquid alts that came after the financial crisis and many of them ended up folding. And so you saw a big push of a lot of product and maybe some really good vehicles, but maybe some not so great ones. And I think also they learned that you got to look under the hood just because something that has alternative in the label doesn't mean it's going to necessarily behave uncorrelated. So I think they're right to be skeptical and kind of back to that idea of measuring twice and cutting once uh, and making sure that it makes sense from a business standpoint, from a client experience standpoint. And so I think they do that right in general. And maybe that leads some firms to say, hey, I get it, but it's not for us. And other firms that say, okay, we're ready to move forward and we're comfortable now. I think what we see, and we see this in the data, that what advisors tend to do wrong is they tend to try to shut the barn door after the horse is already out, and that they tend to utilize alternatives, particularly liquid ones, as trades as opposed to strategic allocations, and they tend to time them relatively poorly. Last year is a great example as well. The best performing asset class, managed futures, look at the inflows into the mutual funds and ETFs in that category at the end of last year and early this year. Better thing would have been to own it going into 2022, not afterwards. There's always that return chasing component. Um, and that's just not specific to alternatives. That's just investor behavior 101. We tend to pile in things that have done well. I think what we see is that alternatives t tend to get a shorter leash when they're not working. There might be a particular equity manager or bond manager that an advisor is comfortable sticking with, even if they're going through a rough stretch of relative underperformance. If it's something alternative that they're not as familiar with, they might be prone to cut that more quickly after a bad year or two. How do you help a client as an advisor understand that doing something that's counterintuitive may actually be the right thing to do? Like now, as an example, may seem like a tougher time to invest in something like venture. But historically, when you've looked at vintages that tend to perform well, it's when public equity markets may not be doing as well. Multiples have contracted. When multiples expand, it's when the asset class generally performs well. That may happen in a number of years going forward, given the current multiple environment that we live in based on where valuations are in public markets. And then fund sizes mm -hmm. are going to be smaller. People are going to raise smaller funds. So there's going to be more opportunity. So now might suggest it would be a good time to invest in venture, but that's hard for people to wrap their head around because it's hard to invest into something when it seems very risky. How do you think advisors should approach that? I understand and respect that there's a business they have to run. They have to make sure that they're preserving their client's capital, making sure their clients trust them and are happy with them. Because like you say, there's a short lease for a good reason. I think, especially for what you mentioned venture, like 
things that they are really committing to for a long period of time, it's a bigger decision to make versus something that, you know, hey, if I feel like I got it wrong, I can get out of it pretty quickly. What I would say is you can kind of translate it back to things that we already do that are maybe counterintuitive. Like I think most advisory firms have some kind of rebalancing process in place for their multi-asset portfolios. And that's a counterintuitive exercise because naturally you're taking a little bit from what's done recently well and you're adding to something that might have done relatively poorly. And a client might ask, well, why are you buying that that's had negative returns over the past three years or whatever the case might be? So I think many advisors are already comfortable with that conversation around buy low, sell high, et cetera, et cetera. For us, the way we manage our equity portfolios, we have a strong bias towards having a value tilt in the portfolio and value investing in general is buying things that are out of favor, that maybe have a lot of bad news priced in. So I think if you're examining, whether it be venture, whether it be catastrophe reinsurance or any other alternative asset class, you can take that same framework and say, hey, don't just succumb to recency bias and look at what's happened in the past few years. We want to look prospectively and not just look in the rearview mirror and say from volatility and from dislocation comes opportunity. And while there might be a lot of negative headlines around something like venture following the events of the past week, maybe for firms that are just exploring the asset class, maybe it would have been a mistake if they had started legging into it a couple of years ago, but now might be the time to say, hey, we should probably spend some serious time here because maybe there's an opportunity to be had for future vintages or future allocations. So draw it back to what you're already used to communicating. On that point, what kind of actionable advice would you give to funds who are trying to work with the wealth or RIA channel? I would say be patient. I think many of them already are. I know the institutional sales cycle can be long as well, but I, I think you don't go into an RIA just expecting that they're going to add you to their models or make some sizable allocation after one or two meetings. For groups like us, for other large RAs with centralized investment teams, it's a pretty pretty thorough and diligent process. There's not just the research team, but there's investment committees and governance and other voting members and people with a say in those sorts of things. So I think go in with an emphasis on education because a lot of firms you meet with are going to need that education to be better equipped to make decisions. And in addition to, I would say, there's certainly some brand name firms that I think a lot of RAs and advisors are familiar with. There might be other asset managers that might have a great reputation or brand in the institutional community but maybe aren't as well known yet amongst wealth managers. So don't necessarily assume that these RAs know who you are and how great you are and what your track record is and all this reputation. You got to bring them up to speed too and maybe leave the ego at the door a little bit and know that this is a different audience that you're catering to. Given that many of these firms may not have worked with the wealth community in a systematic way before, how should they go about trying to find the right wealth managers who understand alts, who want to allocate to alts and who want to have conversations with those GPs? That's a great question. I, there's a handful. We don't have to get into like names. I think I've done a good job of hosting educational events. And I think when you're leading with education, you're naturally going to attract the most curious and I think thoughtful allocators out there. So I think putting yourself out there and being a thought partner and thought leader to that community, I think will ultimately foster interest and respect and all of those sorts of things. Obviously there's a wide net to cast. There's a lot of RAs out there and I think they need to be thoughtful on where they spend their time. The industry is also increasingly consolidating through M&A. So there's still a lot of firms out there, but there's also an increasing number of growing firms and aggregators and multi-regional and national firms that may, maybe for, in terms of thinking, probably they probably want to focus their efforts in large part there because that could be the most impactful from a fundraising side of things if ultimately an allocation is made, just given the large asset and client base. 
How do you think about the role of digitization and mobile in this context? When I reference a graphic in your book that you call the fintech smartphone home screen, it references Scott Galloway's point that the most valuable real estate are the icons on the homepage of your smartphone. In that context, do you think that alternative asset managers or alts-focused platforms, the iCapitals, et cetera, of the world, do they need to be mobile first to successfully serve investors, particularly the next-gen investor who's younger, mobile first, et cetera? For the asset managers, I don't think it's imperative that they be mobile first. I think for a fintech platform of sorts, I think it is increasingly important because more and more investors are complementing their existing either self-directed or managed portfolios with some experimentation, we'll call it. And hey, maybe they have a handful of apps that they do it themselves on their phone with, whether it be collectibles or crypto or real estate. I think on one hand, I think advisors need to understand that trend and be prepared that, hey, the way we've always accessed investments through pooled fund vehicles might not necessarily be the only way in the future. And also recognize that your clients might be investing in things outside of what you directly manage. I think just understanding that there is going to be this increased adoption of mobile apps and mobile applications. How do you find ways to help your clients report on that, to get a holistic view of everything, inclusive of not just what you manage, but what they might have outside, and give them a bigger picture view of their entire balance sheet and portfolio? I want to segue to something to end the podcast I think would be fascinating for people to hear, which is, what's the one thing you learned about alts? that you wish you learned earlier in your career? I think this idea of that there are no silver bullet asset classes out there in the alternatives world. There's no one investment type that's going to deliver outsized returns in every economic environment with little to no risk. It just doesn't exist, nor does there exist a perfect portfolio either. I think I spent a lot of mental energy going through this exercise of, oh gosh, if we thought about adding this, move this around, is that going to give us this all-weather perfect portfolio? Everything's going to be an evolution over time. And at the end of the day, different investors have different objectives. What might be good for me might not be good for someone else. I think just maybe beating it into myself earlier that, hey, there, there's a lot of really great things to invest in outside of traditional asset classes. They can improve portfolios, but at the end of the day, things are going to always surprise us and nothing's perfect. So, <laughs> I'm not going to let you off the hook, though, without asking. You have to pick one alt investment right now that you can make. What's most interesting and exciting to you right now? Again, it's like always... Uh, asking to pick a favorite child or something, but I only have one child, so it's easy to pick a favorite child. Certain alternatives might be appropriate for some investors, but not for all based on accreditation or other things. When I think of what should most investors own a little bit of, I, I kind of think of two things. I think of trend following or managed futures, and I think of catastrophe reinsurance. Those are two that I feel like the diversification benefits are so compelling, and they are both accessible in liquid formats that any investor can own through a financial advisor, the, I think there's a great case that almost everybody should own a little bit of, of both of those. And so not to pick favorites, because I've got, there's a lot of interesting things out there, but I, for the most broad applicability, I really like those two. It's a great way to end. We got actionable advice. We got some flavors that you like. Phil, this was awesome, covering so much ground on the alt space, really instructional for both GPs and LPs. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. I had a blast. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. 
and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at Gozalt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-